Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, as I look back and have a listen to some of the highlights from previous shows throughout the year. In this episode, Adam Farrer, Heather Parry, Neil Lancaster, Sarah Smith, Neil Mackay and Louise Welsh all choose their favourite book from teenage formative years. It's interesting, you know, when you, your next choice of book in the formative years is Lonesome Traveller by Jack Kerouac. And, and that maybe relates in, in some respects, I'm guessing, to, to some of the, the way you've developed as a, as a writer, and as a performer, given it's a kind of non-fiction series of essays. Yeah, because it, it was, um, I didn't realise it was non-fiction until a few years ago. I just presumed it was yet another of his, his um, fiction pieces. But it, it's really, it resonated with me at the time when I read it. I was probably 17 or 18 and I was in a in a band and I was traveling around a lot mostly to and from rehearsals and thinking about oh you know it'd be great to be on the road and to be actually seeing the world through this like a like a lone wolf in a way as well like because I, I envisioned myself as a singer songwriter tra- traveling around the world with my guitar like all those kind of very teenage thoughts of what it'd be like to be a cool adult and it, it, he Jack Carrot really fitted into that that idea of the kind of person I wanted to be. But there's there's some there's a beautiful essay in there called let me just grab my copy of it. Yeah, it's called Alone on the Mountaintop. And it's about him working as a fire warden in a forest and these ideas of him sitting in his elevated hut making coffee on a little stove. And that was a really romantic image that I wanted to drop myself in into as well. I was always looking to es- escape, I think, and discover a bit of adventure. And that book that really um, fell in line with the things that I actually wanted. I mean, you mentioned earlier you you got to a certain point where you wanted to be seen to to be reading more worthy books and you know obviously names that people would would know. And and I've spoke to a lot of people where on the road is is a book that many people read in their formative years. Partly for that reason, did did you read Lonesome Traveller first, or did you read On the Road as well, or what brought you to that particular Jack Kerouac book? That was the first one that I found in a shop. Like I knew, I, I learned who Jack Kerouac was, but I didn't know where to start. And this was in a discount bookshop for two pounds. So I picked it up and gave it gave it a go. And I didn't actually listen because I haven't I haven't read it, but I listened to the audiobook of On the Road last year, and I hated it. Like <laughs> really, it annoyed me quite quickly. I think it's a book that I probably would have loved at the same time when I first read Lonesome Traveller, but now it's yeah, it feels like a bit of a pose. I don't I don't know how other other people have reacted to it. And I know one of the one of the episodes I listened to, so, someone wasn't particularly enamoured with it anymore. It seems to be a book of not so much of its time, but of a time in your life. And, and certainly people who have maybe come to it later have maybe more had that reaction that you've had than than absolutely loving it. Yeah, I think it, it's certainly I don't I don't know if I if I read Lonesome Traveller now fresh for the first time, if I'd be that interested in it. But I've got a, this real affection for what it meant to me at the, at the time. So yeah. it's it sort of it's elevated by its, the time it arrived in my hands. We go from your childhood book, and and I really love this jump from Ina Blyton <laughs> and the Magic Faraway Tree to. Your, your favourite book from kind of teenage student formative years. And I'm, I'm not sure if anybody could guess that we're going to jump from The Magic Faraway Tree to American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. And that is quite a, a jump. Um, I didn't realise how ridiculous that was until you pointed <laughs> it out. Yeah, but it is quite the leap. So I, I write quite dark things most of the time. 
And I kind of always have been interested in that. I think if anyone in your life writes horror or has written horror or anything, they might have had a similar thing to me where you read Goosebumps and then you read Point Horror and then you graduated to Stephen King. And Stephen King, you know, Carrie and those sort of books, when you're kind of like 15, 16, 17, they're just great. I mean, you know, Stephen King's written a lot and he's written a lot of crap, but (laughs) Carrie is like a really brilliant novel. It's just so good. And things like Misery and The Shining, of course, like really brilliant, but they really start to explore the underbelly of people and of society. And then from there, I just kind of started reading more and more dark stuff. And what I realize about myself now is that I love books that are, I call it doing a thing. So they're kind of like high concept and they will follow that to the end, to right to their logical conclusion, even if it's a kind of mad journey to get there. So have you ever read American Psycho? Yeah, I absolutely love the book. I, I think oh, it's nice. I think it's an absolutely extraordinary novel. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes the, the violence, the, the kind of real shocking violence within it, I think sometimes deflects from what I think is an incredible book, just a you know, a real a kind of critique of that time and that place and those people. And I'm I'm not convinced actually that even though the, the descriptions of the killings, you know, Patrick Bateman massacring all these people is just horrific, I'm not convinced that they actually within the novel they take place. I'm not sure if it's all within his head. You see, I love that. I love books that don't give you an easy answer and leave that room open for interpretation. Like I think of myself as quite an unshockable person in many ways, because I do tend to just consume this content. And especially when I was a teenager, I would just consume this horrible content. And I suppose I was trying to find my boundaries of what I found too much. And American Psycho is right on the edge. It's the only book that's ever made me feel sick. And I can remember exactly where I was it's the scene where, with the rat, and I won't say any more than that, just for anyone who's not read it or might be eating. And I was on a Southwest train from Surrey to London, and I thought I was going to be sick. And I suppose that's about a female body, so maybe I was relating to it in that way, because you, you, know, you just highly empathise with the person. And yeah, I just, I love, it's such a critique, it's such a brilliant critique of 80s culture in the US and the UK as well. I mean, think of that's like the Thatcherite Reagan era, isn't it? It's the 80s cocaine-fueled finance kind of boom era. But it's kind of also what we're still living under in a lot of ways, this kind of like unbridled, unharnessed power of the rich. And he isn't really writing about violence done to each other. He's writing about violence done by a system. I just love, I would rather read a book that makes me feel sick than a book that makes me not think about anything at all. Uh, my, taste, my taste is probably quite awful. And I really have to be careful what books I recommend to which people because they just, a lot of people just wouldn't want to read it. But to me, American Psycho, it was like, look, you can do this. And it's, it's written with this kind of like pure anger as well. Like you can feel he's really mad. He's really mad at the things he's writing about. And Brett Easton Ellis is really funny now. He's kind of like a weird old curmudgeon. And he actually has a podcast. And if you ever listen to it, it has all these kind of like icons of, the 90s, like um, Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie and people like that. And they sound kind of like moody old dads (laughs) who kind of aren't flavor of the month anymore. But they all did such kind of shocking things at the time and they pushed culture. And I actually ended up writing my dissertation about American Psycho. (laughs) That's what kind of student I was. So if I can take you on in the next question in the podcast, which is more the kind of teenage formative years book, 
And the book that you've chosen is a book called Running Blind by Desmond Bagley. I am a massive, massive fan of Desmond Bagley. To me, we had the big thriller writers of the 1970s, you know, Alistair MacLean, Len Dayton, Hammond Innes, Dick Francis. They're all brilliant. I think they're just terrific. And I don't know that the equivalent exists at the moment. There are some amazing authors out there, thriller authors, but the desire is out there now is psychological thrillers as opposed to these action thrillers of the 1970s. Now, to me, uh, Desmond Bagley was the best of them all. The journey towards this book, I do have a copy of this one, which I actually got very recently because, again, the same thing happened. I read it so many times it fell to bits. When I became a writer and I started thinking about my influences, this book really occurred to me. Now, this was the first one I read of his, Running Blind. Now, it arose out of a television programme. I'd have been, I think, probably about 12 at the time. And there was a TV adaptation of Running Blind on ITV, I think. And I sat and watched it with my parents. It was just gripping. And I thought, wow, this is really good. And it's a story of a lapsed agent from the security services in Great Britain who's living in isolation in the Scottish Highlands when he's forced back to do what, on the face of it, seems like a simple task for his old paymasters in British intelligence. Now, of course, all is not what it seems. He has to go to Iceland to, on the face of it, deliver a package. And it all goes horribly wrong. And he ends up in this one man and his girlfriend against not only the Russians, but elements of the British Secret Service and the American Secret Service. Now, this was written in 1970, this book. Now, there's no internet then. You wanted to research Iceland. You probably needed to go there. And the level of research and detail in Iceland, into the, into the, the geography of Iceland, into some of the features of Iceland, And Bagley was just amazing. He had the most incredible way with words. Very simple, not massive, great, long, rambling descriptions. It was very punchy. You know, they're not long books. They're simply written, but to me, stunningly written. I've got got to read you the opening line from this book, because I think it's just, I don't see how you can't want to finish this book. This is the first opening line of this book. To be encumbered with a corpse is to be in a difficult position especially when the corpse is without benefit of a death certificate. True, any doctor, even one just hatched from medical school, would have been able to diagnose the cause of death. The man had died of heart failure, or what the medical boys pompously called cardiac arrest. The proximate cause of his pumper having stopped pumping was that someone had slid a sharp sliver of steel between his ribs, just far enough to penetrate the great muscle of the heart and to cause serious an irreversible leakage of blood, so that it had stopped beating. Cardiac arrest, as I said. I wasn't too anxious to find a doctor, because the knife was mine, and the hilt had been in my hand when the point pricked out his life. Now, that, to me, is a killer opening to a book. You can't help but think, whoa, what's next? How's he got into this situation? And it is an absolutely gripping, fast-moving book, with a character you root for all the way through. Again, a fairly straightforward guy. He's an ex-agent, but he's got some serious demons from things that happened when he was working against the Russians a number of years before. And it's a tale of corruption, of double dealing, of double agents, of triple agents. It's just amazing. Again, I read it till it fell to pieces as a a sort of a 12, 13-year-old, and it stuck with me. When I became a writer, the question you get asked all the time is, who were your influences? Who, you know, who, who influences you now with your writing? And I would come up with names, you know, mostly contemporary writers. 
And then it was somebody, a friend of mine, Denzel Myrick, who's a very successful author. He also, he read it and he said, your books take me back to the old writers of the 1970s. It feels like Bagley, like Alistair MacLean, like it's Lynn Dayton. And I thought, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. And I went back and I picked up Running Blind. I put it on my, on my Kindle and I reread it. And I thought, oh, yeah, how I reveal what's going to happen next. The way I build, you know, try to build tension. This is the influence. And I have to go back and think, I wrote a book I wasn't necessarily expecting to write. I thought I'd write a police procedural. But because of my absence of any sort of plotting, it ended up being a thriller. And when I look back, the biggest influence to me was a book I hadn't actually thought of when thinking of influences. But it was somehow ingrained in me, having read it so many times in my formative years when, you know, obviously you're really malleable. It had this lasting impact on me. And I, I would now say that my biggest influence is Desmond Bagley. And I'm rereading all his backlists. I just love them. I just think they're brilliant. And the book that you've chosen in this category is The Bus Conductor Hines by James Kilman. You couldn't really think of more of a contrast with The Railway Children, which just goes to show what happens to you when you grow up. I read Bus Conductor Hines, I think when I was maybe in the last year of university or just after. What I find funny looking back at it is that the people that I was reading outside of university in my spare time are now the people that get studied at university but when I was reading them they were the kind of new kids on the block and they you know they absolutely would never have been on a university syllabus so it was almost like I really enjoyed that contrast they were kind of the thing that I really wanted to read rather than maybe what I was, all of what I was reading at university so people like James Kelman and Liz Lockhead and Tom Leonard's and Alistair Gray and Agnes Owens. The reason I chose Bus Conductor Hines particularly was that I just found it a complete revelation to be reading a book where people spoke the way that people spoke when I was walking past them on the, the streets. And the fact that the main protagonist was walking through the streets to get to his flat in Drumchapel and he was walking the same streets that I was walking along and, and he was going through the same park and he was meeting the same people. You know, he was a bus conductor on the bus that I was on. So just the very fact that he kind of inhabited a world that I completely recognised and spoke in a way that I completely recognised was, oh, it was just wonderful. I really loved it. I, I was very, very taken with the book at the time. And I've read it again a couple of times. I read it fairly recently, like maybe a couple of years ago. And I still absolutely love it. Reading it as an older person, I found other layers in it about his relationship with his wife and his son and society that I maybe hadn't picked up on when I first read it. And should you explain to, to younger listeners what a bus conductor is? Because obviously that was back in the days when you were on the bus and the conductor came up and down and, and collected your fare rather than you put it in the wee machine. It took me a long time to kind of get into James Kelman. I read Bus Conductor Hines, tried to read at the time how late it was, how late I, I struggled for a long time with James Kelman. I found it quite hard to get into. And it was only after I read You Have to Be Careful in the Land of the Free. It was almost like that kind of unlocked it for me. And, uh, and most recently I read Dirt Road, which I just think is extraordinary. But it wasn't an easy pathway for me into James Kelman. Funnily enough, when it came out, I struggled a bit with how late it was, how late. At that time, though, I really enjoyed his short stories. But I've gone back to 
his other his earlier work later on and appreciated it more. I found that strange because for some reason the character of Rab Hines and the bus conductor Hines is I just felt like I knew him and so he he kind of took me into the story and and I wanted to I wanted to be on the journey with him. Whereas I think I'm thinking it's how late it was, how late and a chancer I found them harder at the time to get into. But I just think James Kelman he just did a remarkable job of evoking a person and a place and showing somebody doing realistic things. I had a quick look on Goodreads to see, I was trying to remember what Heinz's wee boy was called. So I looked on Goodreads and I started, I went into a rabbit hole of like lots of comments and it definitely divides people. <laughs> it's either five star or two star. It's really interesting. Three authors you actually you ended up choosing just in terms oh, yeah. of the book. So it was Hubert Selby Jr., Charles Bukowski, or Kurt Vonnegut? All three of those guys, and I'm sorry they're all men. There's a myriad of amazing, brilliant uh, female writers out there. But these these three writers just really chimed with me when I was a kid uh, and when I was becoming a young man. I, I can go through them for what, what they do for me. Hubert Selby Jr. is just a dark genius. I remember just as the film... Last Exit to Brooklyn was coming out. Do you remember that in the late 80s? What an astonishing film. Jeez, I mean, I just if anyone hasn't watched that film and you want to be shocked and you want to trip into the reality of working class life, go watch that film and then start reading everything that Hubert Selby Jr. has ever done. I knew that film was coming out and as a bit of a, a kind of literary and, and, and cinema freak as in my late teens or mid-teens, I wanted to read the book before the film came out, you know, because I hate reading books after I've watched the film. So I read that and I can remember just being horrified by what this guy had written. Honest to God, I can remember at one point I got the book, I was about halfway through, there's a bit in it where there's this horrendous act of violence carried out against an old lady. And I lifted the book and I physically bit it I'm like, and then threw it across the room in total outrage. I said to myself, I'm never reading that again. I got some, I don't know, some moral majority kick for the one time in my life. Anyway, threw the book across the room. The next day I picked it up, finished it. And I will say to my dying day, I think it is one of the greatest works of literature ever written. Again, like Dracula, right? like Gatsby, I come back to it all the time. I mean, if we go into the sort of esoteric side of writing, Nobody does the first-person narrator better than Selby Jr. He just dips into the, the mind of readers. He'll go from third-person to first-person and back again, and you don't even see the join, which, I mean, is technically almost impossible. He's just a master at that. But what that really means is what you're, you're getting a true glimpse of a human soul, the way he slips into someone's mind. His betrayal of the working class, his betrayal of the truth about the use of drugs, his betrayal of the truth about the, the relationships between men and women. He, is, he strips himself and humanity back, not just to the muscle, to the bone. He's just so revealing. And so, um, so what, what age would you have been when you picked that book up, bit it, and then, and then finished it? Probably about 16, 16, 17, something like that. I think the movie came out in like 88. Did that shock you having that, you know, even at that young age, having that sort of visceral reaction to a piece it, it of literature? It shocked me. And also, yes, it totally, well, I mean, no, the level of cruelty and sadism in Selby Jr.'s work is something to behold, but it's not done in this grotesque, video nasty way. He's showing you horror, which is kind of what I did in the, in the Wolf Trial. A lot of people who read my book, The Wolf Trial, thought, oh my God, the violence is just so much. What I'm trying to do is show the reality of violence. And I think I learned that at the knee of Selby Jr. because he puts the camera on the violence and a lot of people are a bit mimsy about it as writers and, they, and then they look away. 
he doesn't. He just keeps the camera on what's happening and doesn't take it off, you know, until it's over. And then he'll keep it on and show you the aftermath, whether it's about criminality or sexuality or uh, the world of drugs or just the world of toxic masculinity. He's relentless. He is brilliant on exposing what's up with men. Um, and, you know, as a young guy growing up, I always knew that there was something amiss with the culture that m- males were being brought up in. You know, don't cry, play football, fight, fall over drunk, that kind of thing. There's some, there was something missing in terms of the, the soul of male of, of uh, masculinity and Hubert Selby Jr. puts his finger right on that in fact in his book called The Demon which is um, I think maybe it's, it's a much darker read I think than anything he does that <laughs> says a lot for Selby Jr. in The Demon what he does is get inside the mind of well, fundamentally, he's one of the worst misogynists who's ever lived. And it's the slow disintegration of this man under the weight of his own misogyny, the cognitive dissonance. How can this man continue with his attitudes and his treatment of women and still kind of call himself a human being? Honestly, one of the best books I ever read in terms of preparing me to be a decent man as a young man. Because it's like, it's a textbook. Don't do this. Don't behave like that. He's the master. He's, he's, he's a stylistic master. And there's a spirituality to him, which is really important. Now, in terms of books that, that scared me, that unnerved me, this takes me perfectly on to your, your second choice, which was your book from student years, which is the, the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. And I have to, to be honest, when I read that book, it really chilled me. I, I found it quite, un, not quite unsettling, it was very unsettling. I mean, an absolutely brilliant book, but I, I think it would, I'd have to pluck up the courage to read it again. I love it. I love it for that for that reason and for many other reasons as well. You know, I think part of the unsettlingness of it, well, Hogg knows a lot about folk stories. You know, he knows a lot about folklore and these things, of course, too connect with our unconscious. Hogg knows how to tell a brilliant story. Uh, and he starts off in quite a typical Gothic way, you know, by saying this is, of course, a true story. And there are elements of truth within it but for us coming to as a a reader you're like oh is it true but there's something that makes a makes it a a true story is more has more weight more power doesn't it there's there's no accident you know that thing when you say my friend's cousin's brother told it was actually there you know they actually saw this whatever event it is because the the element of truth adds something he also tells it in a, a voice that we recognise. You know, he tells it, a lot of it's written in the vernacular, a lot of it's uh, written in Scots. But I think it's also a very funny book. It's a really amusing book. So to that mixture between horror and, uh, it's not comedy, you wouldn't call it comedy, but humour is a, a yeah. really close one. You know, it's, yeah, the, the laugh being close to the screen. He, he uses that really well. And then the way that the book is constructed in itself is also uh i don't know it's 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 unsettling it's not a straightforward linear narrative it's an unsettling coming together of different stories and i guess the other reason that i love it again comes back to stevenson you know the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde owes a huge amount to hog and the private memories and confessions of a justified sinner and I think he thinks about that structure too, that idea of letters within letters and rooms within rooms and houses that you didn't realise you entered from this lane as well as from the front. And so I think I think it's a hugely uh, pleasing, beautifully written, bewildering, mesmerising, frightening book 
but I also really appreciate the uh, ongoing effect it has on Scottish literature. It's funny for people who are regular listeners to this podcast, one of my constant moans is from when I was coming through secondary school, it was very little Scottish literature that we were taught. So I came to books like this much later and when there is this whole treasure trove of, of great Scottish literature, then I just think it's a shame that we, we weren't given it at the time. But also, just the very fact, I think it was 1824, it was published. What always amazes me with these books is that it's nearly 200 years old. You can pick it up today and it has that impact on you. And that, that's, you know, you're talking about the quality of the writing. That, that's testament to that. It absolutely is. And I, I'm like, yeah, I didn't read it until uh, I was at university. That's when I found that book. I find, you know, trying to remember what books we read at school, I wouldn't want to do down any of my teachers because maybe there are books that I forgot. But my impression is that we didn't really get a lot of Scottish literature. Burns once a year. We would learn our poem <laughs> once a year to recite with Robert Burns. You and I would be kind of contemporaries in terms of that time of that kind of curriculum. And I think, I don't know for whether it was accident or design, they shied away from a lot of what would have been great, great Scottish books. Yeah, we got a lot of angry young men. So we got a lot of North of England writing. I seem to remember the, you know, the, the cupboards being full of those books. And there was, you know, they was, these were really excellent books. And I don't think you only have to read books that you relate to, but I think it is very helpful if there are some books that you could relate to on the curriculum, because what, what does literature do for us? Well, it can open up other worlds, but it can also uh, inform your own world. And I mean, there's nothing, the act of seeing somebody like you on the page, the power of that cannot be underestimated. And that goes, of course, with theatre and movies and music as well. It legitimises you, doesn't it? If you feel yeah. that you have to be American or white or straight or whatever it is to count, it doesn't help your personal development. Yeah, I mean, it's that kind of idea as almost like a role model for you as a reader and a writer. That, that if you, as you say, you don't necessarily have to have everything that relates to your own circumstances or your own surroundings, but I think definitely that age, it definitely helps. It really does. And, uh, you know, as you know, at the point when we were growing up, there was great work being done in the vernacular. You know, they had James Kelman, Alistair Gray, Liz Lockhead, Tom Leonard, Jan Scalloway, of course. Many writers. There's people that are missing out now as well. I think the impression that we got, although there were Agnes Owens, you know, there were women writers. I think the impression that I got a lot of the time was that a lot of Scottish writing was very white it was straight. It was mainly mainly male, I think. Mm -hmm. So we, yeah, so nowadays, of course, I think diversity within Scottish literature is increasing and is uh, to be celebrated as well. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.